0: The truth about the life that we have is that it is in the everyday ordinary decisions that we make, that we show that we're on the path that God wants us to be on, or we find ourselves on the wrong path, which is bad for us and the people around us. You should know I have an assumption at the start here. I assume that seven out of 10 of you are currently in some kind of difficulty because of some other person right now. That is someone that you are connected to and who you're committed to, you can't easily get away from them, is making your life harder than it would otherwise be. Maybe at work or at home or at school. Maybe it's your employer or your employees. Uh, Maybe it's the people that you sit with at church or someone that you share your home with. It could be your children or your parents, your in-laws, your spouse. That relationship is making your life more challenging. And if it wasn't there, well, everything would be different. But there it is. And because of that, you're struggling. Uh, Maybe you've shared this with a friend, hoping to get some good counsel. Uh, She listened as you explained the situation. And then uh, when you finished, she came back with what seemed like good advice. Have you talked to them about it? Have you considered sharing with him very clearly what it is that you wish were different? Oh, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, If only you knew that other person, you wouldn't say that because he'll just throw it back in my face or she'll blow up at me and won't listen. She'll change the subject. He'll go off and become brooding and quiet. You just don't understand and that's why you think it's good. If not for that relationship, everything would be great. But now you see that your life is just going to have to grind on forward because there they are making it harder for you. And that's just the reality where you find yourself. Can I tell you how thankful I am that you are in church here this morning? I really am. If you're one of the seven out of the 10, then I'm glad that you're here because the truth about the life that God actually wants you to have is that it is the life in which you follow Jesus in such a way that you begin to see that relationship which you are thinking of, not as an interruption to your true discipleship, but in fact, the very place where God himself is calling you at this very moment to grow. And if you're in one of the 30%, then fine, you'll be there someday. Can the rest of us say, yes, you will? It's true, isn't it? Because life involves walking with difficult people. Isn't that the truth? And so think of that person now. Maybe not the one that was so difficult that it was dangerous for you and you had to get away from them. You can set that one aside. But the one that you're with, the one that you have to stay with, that is where God himself wants you to see that you have the opportunity to follow his calling for you. In Ephesians, uh, the book from which our organizing text for these last weeks and the weeks ahead has come, we hear from the Apostle Paul this truth that real life is in walking in a certain way. In Ephesians 4.1, he says very simply, lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Uh, If you're new here, uh, we've talked about that calling in terms of making Christ visible. That's what God wants for us, those of us who have been gathered together to see Jesus and have begun to grow to follow him are meant to go out in the world so that we show him to others. We wanna make him visible and God wants us to and that's our calling. And we do that when we walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience. In that relationship, don't you need all three? Sometimes humility to make it. Don't you need to be gentle when you want to be rough? Don't you need patience, yeah? You can't have, those things aren't meaningful unless you have a relationship that's, that's difficult. Do you see it? And then comes the fourth term in the list, which is our focus for today, where Paul tells us that we will walk worthy of our calling when we learn this, bearing with one another in love. That single phrase is about you. And it's about the challenge that you face. And it is perfectly concrete guidance for you personally for how to navigate that challenge. All right there in that one little phrase. And we're gonna take it one bit at a time this morning so that we can learn to keep going without disconnecting either literally or sort of figuratively cutting that relationship off. That's what you need to do. Uh, So let's start with the first part of this phrase, bearing with. When Paul wrote these words in Greek, it was really just one word, a single word more like just the word bear as if he would say bear one another, which sounds strange, but if you dwell on that idea to make sense of it, if you dwell on the word bear, which in English has the same wide range of meaning as it does in Greek, you see that this rich and plastic term helps Because the challenges that we face, they're very unique and they're very complex and so is this word. And so if we pause on this word and dwell on at least three of the ways in which it's used in English, we'll have some light shed on our personal challenges. Think about the word bear and how we use it in our everyday speech. Uh, First, uh, sometimes we use it as a cognate for the word support. When there's a physical structure, which has two floors and one of the walls carries the weight of the floor above it so that that floor doesn't fall down. We call that wall a load-bearing wall. It provides the structural support needed so that that floor doesn't collapse, but rather can stand up because that part of the building doesn't have the integrity or the design it would require to hold itself up. And so it needs a load-bearing wall. Sometimes the relationships that we have with people around us require us to support them like that wall supports the floor above. Can you see it? Sometimes there's a person who doesn't have the strength they they need to stand right now and to bear them means to hold them up. It means to provide the support, it may be physical support, it's more likely to be emotional or intellectual support, lending them your ideas or even your spiritual support to that person to keep them from falling and what Paul wants us to understand first is that the path that God has for us includes holding up some people sometimes. Can you imagine it now? Now, when that person's a pleasant person who you like and get along with, doesn't it feel good to lend support? Yeah, but how about when they grate on your nerves and irritate you in a way that I could never imagine? Do you like supporting them then? (laughs) No, sometimes it can be a grind, right? But here I'm gonna ask you to consider that that the path that Jesus leads us on sometimes is a rocky path. It's not impossible, but it's hard. And what he says to you now this morning is bear with them, support them. Now, maybe that support that you have to give uh, becomes a grind in a way that it doesn't feel like lollipops and rainbows for you to keep going, right? Instead of just supporting them, now you feel like you have to kind of uh, bear with these personality traits, these attitudes and actions in them, which make it really irritating and difficult in a way that you have to tolerate them. That's the second way we use the word bear. Uh, Tolerate in the sense of accepting that there are elements in this relationship which are not as I wish they were. There's things that I wish were different. I cannot change them. But I'm going to hang in there anyway without constant interference, trying to make them just like I want them to be. And therefore, I will bear with them in the sense of tolerating. When I have a hard time saying something and I know you're going to be annoyed because you want me to spit it out already, I say, bear with me. You know that? That means tolerate this time of not understanding me right? Or if I'm irritating and I admit it and I can see that annoyance on your face again and I say, would you please bear with me? Because I'm, I'm being humble in this minute. I'm, I'm realizing you want to run away, but I need you to stay with me. Because I know how hard it will be to try to face this on my own. And so I say, please bear with me. And what I'm really asking you to do is tolerate me. When I look at who I am and I think, I know if I were that other person, if I'm really being humble, I would run, but I need them. Uh, I, I understand that there's this part of my personality that I'm working on, and it's different than what you need. I'm naturally an introvert, and you're an extrovert. You want to go to the party, but I just want to stay home all by myself, and if I ask you to stay in with me again, it's going to be really hard for you because you're going to lose that other thing. Would you please bear with me? I'm asking you to tolerate our difference. That's a second way in which we use the word bear. It's a second way in which Paul wants us to be thinking about the relationships in our lives that are challenging because that's what we're called to if we're going to look like Christ. Now, that can be really, really, really hard. Not just really, really, but I think, I, did I use three or four reallys? Uh, sometimes the, the ability to tolerate ends and then that person becomes intolerable. Right? The, the ability to stick with them becomes just too much. They're unbearable. And that's the third way we use the word bear. Uh, it, it's when we know that we have to endure another person. Uh, in, in New Jersey, In August, when it's 100 degrees for one week straight at 100% humidity, we say the weather is unbearable, right? And maybe that relationship that's in your mind has become 100 degrees, 100% humidity. And you just want to run away into the air conditioning. But if you do that, you know you'll be failing to do what God wants you to do, to walk with them. And maybe that's the atmosphere at work, but you have this sense that God wants you there still. Now, maybe that's what it's like in school for you uh, around the lunch table. You just want to get out of there. Uh, Maybe it's what it's like for you after dinner when the kids are tucked in and you finally sit down side by side in the living room and there is the week old pile of clothes that nobody has folded yet and it feels like you want to explode. Bearing with means all three of these things. It means supporting. It sometimes means... Uh, beyond just supporting, tolerating. And And sometimes the level of toleration goes up so high that it means enduring. A life which shows others what Jesus looks like is a life in which you bear with others. Now, Uh, Paul does not just say in his list in in Ephesians, bear with one another, but he modifies the way in which we're supposed to carry ourselves down the road when we need to do those things that we call bear with a phrase that is perhaps the most central idea in all of Paul's thinking, and it's in those two words at the end of the phrase, in love. Let's dwell on those words for a little bit. Uh, Maybe never in the history of a person who wrote so much is it so clear that there is a central idea to this man's thinking and for Paul, it's love through and through. Uh, Though he's not always directly talking about love, it would be very hard for you to give a fair reading of what he wrote in any one of his letters without being struck by how everything really for him seems to come back to love. In the same way that a plant will only grow in the soil when its roots go down, nothing that Paul tells us we're supposed to do can possibly be done unless it's rooted and grounded in love. And there's a reason for that. It's because Paul's entire project grew for him out of the recognition that the most important thing about you personally and everyone else he wrote to is that God loves you more than you could ever ask or imagine. If he didn't believe that, he never would have written what he wrote. And you must grasp this. For Paul, the most central fact of all of human existence was that God looked at the world, loved it so much that in Christ, he came and gave himself for the world and that's what love is. And now everything everything about everything you'll ever face grows either out of gratitude for love or it doesn't grow in the way that God wants it to grow. If you're on any path, Paul would say, where you're trying to get it right without growing out of the love that's unconditional, which God has for you and that person who annoys you, you'll never get anywhere. And this is especially pertinent in bearing with. Here, Paul wants to instruct those folks in Ephesus and us here that if we're going to support and tolerate and endure the people around us, it's going to, at each and every step, be an action for us which comes out of love. So let's start with some clarity about what love is. Here's the broadest description that I can give, which I think captures Paul's way of thinking about it. Listen. Love is any action which I, in which I seek the benefit of the other for their sake and not my own even though it costs me and without being motivated by what I might receive in return. It's a decision to seek the benevolence of the other without regard to the cost or benefit to me. Love is is not a feeling. It's not. It's an action. And like the foundation of a home, it comes first in terms of logical priority for anyone who will seek to build anything like a life worth living in. Think of whatever you suppose you ought to do as a follower of Jesus. Whatever it is, if it's not love, it comes second. And if you try to build it, whether you're the, you, you know God's uh, word better than anyone else, whether you have all the wisdom in the world that only angels could dare to know, whether you can speak of God more eloquently than anyone else could ever speak of God so that people trust and believe in him. If you had enough faith to move mountains out of the way, if you gave everything you could ever give, including your own body as an act of grace to others, but you didn't have love, first of all, as a foundation, you would have nothing. And those of you who know Paul well recognize that I'm quoting him, not making this up. And now Paul is so on about love that in 1 Corinthians, a letter that he wrote to another church, he spent an entire chapter, chapter 13, describing exactly what it is. And so now here's what I want you to do, and I'm asking you to do this. Apply your mind and your thoughts now, and and don't push your heart away, but let them all come together to understanding what it would mean for you to bear with someone in the way that Paul says you ought to, in love, because this is what love is. 1 Corinthians 4 reads like this. Love is patient, Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. I want to take our time here. The first thing to note is that everything which Paul says about love here and in the verses which follow indicates, as I've said already, that love is an action and not a feeling. It's much clearer in Greek, but already in this first verse, Paul says what love is by employing five verbs, no adjectives. And it's clear in Greek because the way it starts, love is patient. Patient there is an adjective describing what love is. Is is the verb there. In Greek, it's love. Love suffers long. Long-suffering is the old-fashioned way to describe patience. Last week, that was our subject through and through. We talked about how patience enables you to wait and persevere and endure and forbear. I want to encourage you to review that message if patience is still a challenge for you. It's on our website. Paul starts by saying that's what love is. It does that. Love waits. Love is persevering. That's what love is. It's hanging in there through meager results. Love is enduring. It's when you want to give up, but you don't. That's actually love. You see how it's not a feeling, it's an activity? love is bearing with. That's what love is. The second phrase up there, love is kind. This is such a magnificent fact. The word kind in Greek sounds so much like the word Christian does in Greek that in the early centuries, People who were looking at Christians from the outside couldn't tell whether they were being referred to as Christians or kind. Did you get that? Where kind is this kind of mild, good-hearted, good-natured determination to actually find a way to aim at the benefit of the other through thoughtful well-measured activity, thinking about what would be good for the other and doing it, unprovoked benevolence. Wouldn't it be wonderful if when people thought about Christians, they couldn't tell whether they were Christians or kind because they were all kind? That's easy again to people who are nice. Did anybody ever watch the show MASH all those years ago? It's nice to be nice to the nice. Do you remember that? I think Frank Burns said that. No, here love is with the person who is a burden, being kind. Then these four in rapid succession, it's not envious, boastful, arrogant, or rude. Envy is the thing you feel when someone else's success makes you angry because you compare yourself to them and in order to feel good about you, you have to be doing better than them. And love is the opposite. It wants the other to succeed. It says, I'm through selfishly comparing my own value to theirs and needing to be better. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. Boasting is when you stand in the center and want to direct attention toward your accomplishments so you can feel better than the people around you. And love has no space for that. If it wants to see someone else's success is lifted, it's not its own, it's the success of the other. It's not arrogant. Arrogant is the person who needs to be in the center of everything so that the whole world revolves around them and love is the exact opposite. It says, you take the center. I don't need to be in the spotlight. I want you to thrive. Rudeness, that's acting in a way where you couldn't care less about the impact of your behaviors on others. And again, that's the opposite of love. Love never ventures one single step without asking how will it affect that other person? Will it be good for them or not? This is what love is. It is the act in every one of these ways of patience, kindness, of generosity, of of letting the other have the center and being thoughtful. Paul continues. This is how it goes in verse 5. Love, this is what he says. It does not insist on its own way. Let's take these one bit at a time. Love doesn't always have to get its way. A love can stand at a a fork in the road and say, I very much want to go that way. But since I'm going to choose love here, I'm going to let us go the other way. And listen, don't only think of this in terms of romantic relationships. Although, yes, it applies there, doesn't it? But at work and with colleagues and friends, uh, with your neighbors and the people who uh, employ you or the person who's renting the flat that you own, love doesn't always insist on its own way. It's not... Irritable. That means it's not right on the edge at every moment of falling into anger. It's not eruptive. It's composed. Love is not resentful. Uh, maybe you've heard this expression when you've heard this passage before. It keeps no record of wrongs. Isn't that a great image of what it's like? Resentment is the holding on mentally in your mind. Uh, all of the marks against that other person and using them for fuel to smolder that fire that gives you reason to feel that they are bad. And love says, no, I'm not going to fuel that fire. Uh, I I say no to resentment. Uh, It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. I mean, this is subtle. It sounds too Um, holy and religious put like that, but let me put it in a very simple term. Love doesn't like gossiping about someone who's not there and taking pleasure in laughing about their shortcomings. That's what it means to rejoice in wrongdoing. It's to think of another person's failures and feel better about yourself because of it. And love doesn't do that. Love doesn't put an image, which is always a caricature by the way, an image of them beside me and say, yes, I'm doing better than they are, which means I'm thankful for their failures. That is rejoicing in wrongdoing. Love never does that. It only rejoices in the truth. And the truth is that that other person was made in the image of God and is beloved by him because that is a person, that man, that woman for someone uh, for, for whom Christ died. And love loves it. Love rejoices in that. And here, let's be realistic again. You have this person in your life that makes it more difficult and you're connected to them and that's who you should be thinking about when you hear this love. In verse seven, uh, Paul ends with a final staccato of verbs which Summarize the description and bring it to a conclusion. All four verbs accompanied by the same object, all things. Here, listen, in verse seven. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Bears all things, that means love puts up with everything. Does that sound like it's too hard to do? There's, there's nothing which love cannot face. Please, if you're thinking about the romantic feelings again, that's not what Paul means when he talks about love. Remember, it's an activity. Love believes and hopes all things. This is a way of insisting that always and in all times, love believes and hopes. It never loses hope. It's always ready to be confident about what's ahead, no matter what's behind. That's what he means when he says, love is... It uh, is indomitably positive. It's unstoppably hopeful. It endures all things, means love, always perseveres. It has a tenacity in the present, held up by its absolute confidence in the future that enables it to live every kind of circumstance to continually pour itself out on behalf of others. Again, if it sounds impossible, please let me tell you what Paul would say at this moment. Yes, it is utterly impossible for you. But the reason I'm telling you that you must bear with others in love, is because it is absolutely possible. And in fact, your joyful calling to be able to do this with the help of the one who calls you and who is able to lend his own presence to to give you the strength and power to love. And that's exactly what Jesus is. He's the one who walks the road with us. And if we have faith, this is the promise that the scriptures give, that he walks the road in us, in the power of the Spirit, to to enable us to love. And it is our joy and pleasure when we do it, even though everything in us will find it impossible. And now it's time to be realistic again. This instruction from Ephesians that we are to bear with in love applies to the third part of the phrase there, one another. And this is critical now. If Paul meant... That, what we're supposed to do as Christians is have these kinds of feelings and this kind of affect in general, vaguely, for the world around us. Believe it or not, that would be pretty easy. Because, sure, there's plenty of rotten things in the world, but there are lots of good things and good people in the world, right? And as long as you don't get to know anyone too well, it's easy to love them, right? I'm being completely serious. But Paul here, when he wrote those words, one another, was actually aware of the fact that he was addressing a church where there were people who got on each other's nerves. There were petty followers of Jesus who wanted to compare themselves to other followers of Jesus and feel better about themselves because they had spiritual gifts, which the others didn't. And they were ready to say, you don't count at all. We could do without you, thank you very much. Those were the people that Paul addressed. And he was thinking of them and telling them that this is what you must do if you're going to live the calling that God has for you. If you're gonna make Jesus visible, you have to bear with those folks in love. And so here it is, I'm gonna ask you to be mature. Here it is, time for you to let that person come into your mind who you are connected to in a way that you know I can't just pull away from them. Maybe they are at the church, they're at the church and so are you. And you're pretty sure that God wants you here. And you're pretty sure that just to bail because they're difficult would be an act of disobedience on your part. Go ahead and think of them. Maybe it's your spouse. You'd be surprised at how many husbands and wives find themselves over time feeling like this person is unbearable. I'm serious, it's true. Uh, It may be your siblings or your your in-laws or the coworkers that you have. If you let them come into your mind, and now please listen to your pastor. Even if you're just visiting, I'm your pastor for this day. Jesus wants you to bear with that person in love. That's the very person that you're meant to bear with. Oh, pastor, you just wouldn't say that if you knew how difficult they really are. You wouldn't tell me that if you knew how long I've been hanging in there with them. If you saw the expression on their face when I said a kind word to them last night, you wouldn't dare tell me that. If you could hear the tone of voice, oh, sure, they say the right words, but the way they say it, (laughs) you would never say that. You know, everything would be fine if not for this fatal flaw in their character. They're the one who stands in the way of my forward progress in faith. If you only knew how much easier it would be for me to follow Jesus without them, you wouldn't say it. Here I'm gonna ask of you something, which I think, this is a real ask, okay? I'm going to ask you to freeze that thought about them. And I want you to know if they were in this church for the first worship service, maybe they would be thinking about you in that way while I was telling them that God wants them to bear with somebody. Maybe if they're here with you now, as you're imagining all those things about them, they're doing the same thing for you. And the truth about every one of us, and we have to grow up and admit this, is that there is something about us that makes us hard to bear. And just like they can't say it, see it, neither can we. Do you know who can and does see it at every moment? God always sees it in all of us. And do you know what He does? He always bears with us. And so here's how I'm gonna close my message. Are you ready for this? I'm gonna teach you how to become increasingly unbearable. I'm not kidding because I always end my messages with three positive steps to take on how to be you know, easier to love. I'm doing the opposite today, because I'm into that now. I'm creative, right? And it's not gonna be three, it's four. And so I'm gonna give you four thoughts that will make you unbearable. Okay, so you have that person in mind now, that difficult person, and I'm going to teach you how to be increasingly isolated and alone because you're going to be unbearable. Here it is, number one. Thinking about them and and how the relationship affects you, you're going to say to yourself, he always makes me feel bad. That's the first thought. She always makes me feel bad. It's important, first and foremost, that you focus on the things that they are doing wrong. Keep your attention there. Okay? Always. If there's something that they do right, push it out of your mind. It doesn't belong here because you're gonna use the word always, all right? The only time you're not gonna use always is when never is appropriate and then you're gonna use never. <laughs> she never, if there's any evidence to the contrary, push it out of your mind and go back to the thing that she, and here also, this is critical. The way you feel, she makes you feel that. He made you feel that way. If you are sharing with a friend who suggests that you personally have some responsibility for your feelings, right? Maybe the friend says, if you weren't always talking about it all the time, maybe you wouldn't feel so bad. Or if you, if you gave them the benefit of the doubt, maybe you would feel better. No, they made you feel that way and stop talking to that friend. <laughs> If they convince you that you had something to do with it, it's time for the second thought. Here's the second thought that's gonna help you be unbearable. It's her character, but my environment. Or that is, if you are willing to admit that you've done something wrong, attribute it to environmental factors. Sure, I was sure, but that's because I'm tired. Or I was hungry. I did say something mean, but I would never have said it if she weren't a mean person. You see the difference? It's her, it's his character. He's just a rotten person through and through. I only snapped because anyone who had to be around him and that terrible character would respond like this. It's my environment, it's their character. That's what you've got to tell yourself, okay? Do you see it? That will help you become even more unbearable. If someone points out, and if it dawns on you that, wait a minute, maybe they could be doing the same thing with me. As I suggested earlier, just repeat it again. Yeah, they're doing that to me because of a character flaw. For me, it's environmental. Now, while you're dwelling on how difficult the future is going to be on account of their character flaws, and then you suddenly realize, I don't have any more friends because everybody's fled from me. And now you're by yourself, and you're thinking about that other person. Here's the third thing you're going to say. I can change him. I have the ability, the responsibility to work on him. It is my job to point out to him in a clearer way all of the ways he behaves badly and needs to grow. I can show him how to develop, to mature. I can change him, and I will. Good luck with that. (laughs) Keep telling yourself that it's your responsibility to change her and work at it. Never let yourself consider that maybe you have some changing to do. And then, with these three, you will be on the road to unbearability. (laughs) And eventually, if you keep walking long enough, you're going to be right on the edge of becoming unbearable to the one who always wants to bear you, which is God. And I don't talk about hell a lot in church, right? I don't, but maybe this is what hell is. Hell is being alone and angry and self-righteous about all the other people around you who are ruining your life. And so there on the precipice of eternal separation from God, Tell yourself this, this is the fourth thing you're gonna say, and it will make you ultimately unbearable. This has nothing to do with God. Maybe you could have been thinking that while I'm preaching. I wish he would stay more with the scriptures. Why not tell us more about doctrine? Shouldn't we hear more about the atonement from this fellow and justification and sanctification? Why does he so often dwell on things like propitiation? I know those words. This has everything to do with God. Everything. Because God loves you. And as you make yourself unbearable to others by telling yourself the lies which are up here on the screen, his heart bleeds and breaks for you because he loves you. And he wants you not to be alone in your self-righteousness. He wants you to be bearing with others. And that, my dear friends, is maybe the most important thing that you can do to grow as a follower of Jesus. It is to put up yet again with that annoyance. It is to swallow your pride and not say that thing back in anger, but instead hold on and be patient with the power that God gives you. That could be the most important thing about your faith. And I'll tell you right now that it may be the most important thing about your faith so that you can show that other person who Jesus is and show the world around you what Christians are like. They hang in there with people. But even if nobody sees, it's the most important thing about your faith for this reason, and you must grasp this. Your salvation is a direct result of Jesus' decision to go on bearing with you. That's why you're saved. You might think, well, I'm not saved. I don't really believe in that stuff yet. Yes, but the foundation has already been laid down perfectly. The reason that God came and died in Christ for you personally, whether you believe it or not, he already did that, was because he decided to go on bearing with you in love, and he still does. And he will tomorrow and the next day. There's nothing that will ever change that about him. And so that's not only your salvation, it's your preservation, It's the thing that's gonna make it so that tomorrow when you don't bear with that person and are a miserable wreck, that you can go right back to him because he will bear with you. He will support you and he will tolerate you and you are hard to tolerate to God. And he will endure you forever. And that's why this has everything to do with God. You and I are are held by the gracious love of God which bears with us. And the invitation to show others what Jesus Jesus is like, to make him visible to others, is an invitation to bear with the people around us in love. And the truth about all of us is every one of us needs that. And so let's ask for God's help to do it now in prayer. Would you join me? God, I thank you for the gift of your word which instructs us in what we need to know. I thank you that... The truth about our lives is that it is in the ordinary affairs of our existence with those people who make our lives more challenging that we get to live as you mean for us to live. And I ask very simply for the power and strength that only you can give to bear with the people that we need to bear with so that we can love others in a way that shows the world what you look like. God, give us the strength and the capacity to do that and help us thrive as we walk on this journey together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.